And Esther ends with the characters, Mordecai and Esther, almost giving a summary uh, in letters of what's happened in the story beforehand. So we're going to do a kind of overview this week and look at some of the big lessons of the book. Uh, But we want the word of God to drive everything we do. So I'm going to read from uh, Esther chapter 9 and verse 23. Esther 9 and verse 23. So the Jews accepted what they started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants." Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of of the high honour of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Amen. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Friends gather around uh, the young man who's just had his relationship terminated uh, by his girlfriend. Don't worry, they say. Someone else will turn up soon. There are plenty more fish in the sea. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, across the city in the hospital ward, more friends gather around Uh, the elderly lady who's being brought in for surgery the next day. Don't worry, they say, I'm sure it'll be okay. I'm sure you'll get over it and be back on your feet soon. Up the road at the university, uh, the student has just opened her exam results and seen she's failed badly. Don't worry, say her friends, it'll all turn out for the best. I'm sure there's good news round the corner. I wonder if you've been in one of those situations, either as the person giving the advice, giving the encouragement, or as the one receiving it. But when friends come to you and they are broken hearted in some way, it is instinctive, isn't it, to want to say, no, don't worry, it'll be okay. Everything will turn out for the best. 
But let me ask a brutal question. Are you sure it will? If you're absolutely honest, are you sure it will? My granny used to say this to me. She was a tough northerner. <laughs> but she, 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 she'd say, she'd say, I'm a great fatalist. Everything will work out. But how do you know? How do you know? Again, whether you call yourself a Christian or not here this morning, we all fear deep down that the future might not be as rosy as we hope it will be. We know, if we're honest, that our friends are saying things to cheer us up, to stem the tears. But if we were being brutally logical, brutally honest, are we sure they're right? Uh, Esther 9 and 10, the story we've just read, believe it or not, uh, invites you to a world, a world in which you can live where you can guarantee the happy ending. Children, you know that all the best stories end with the prince and the princess living happy ever after, don't they? Happily ever after. Just imagine, again, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you're so welcome. It's so, we're so pleased you're, you're with us uh, here. You've, you've come along. I know ch- church can be a strange place. But, but just let me ask you a question. Could, could you imagine what life would be like if you were sure your story was going to end in a happily ever after? Wouldn't that change everything? Wouldn't that change how you view t- today, tomorrow, the week ahead? Wouldn't that change how you view your present sufferings? Well, stick with us. And I hope Esther 9 will, will show us how that world is possible for all of us. Uh, the first thing that, that Esther 9 and 10 tells us is that the end is better than the beginning. Children, that's the first thing I want you to hear this morning. The end is better than the beginning. That is, the end of the story is better than the beginning. Let's start right at the end of this book of Esther. It ends with Mordecai the Jew. He's arguably one of the, arguably the main character of Esther. We call the book Esther, but that's just a kind of custom. The book doesn't have its own name. Biblical authors didn't sort of give titles to their books, you know, Harry Potter and the prisoner of Azkaban or whatever. They didn't give titles like that. So we've got used to calling it Esther, but it's really the story of two people, Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's cousin. And if you remember the story, Mordecai began in this story as a a sort of middle to low ranking palace official. He'd been taken away from his homeland in Israel. He was serving this foreign king, this emperor in Persia. But then he heard a plot. He overheard a plot against the king. And through various twists and turns, we'll return to them in a moment, he ends up being promoted so that at the end of chapter 10, do you see there in verse 2, children? Verse 3, sorry. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank only to the emperor, to King Ahasuerus. He was great among the Jews, popular with his brothers, the multitude, the crowds. He ends the story higher than he began it. In that way, that the story of Esther and the story of Mordecai, children, if you, if you wanted to draw something in your sheets, it's like a tick where a tick is is shaped you start there you go down and Mordecai did go down didn't he at one stage in the book he was under a death sentence he was wearing sackcloth and ashes his execution was approaching the gallows to hang him on had been built Mordecai was in the dust he went down from his position as a palace official but then he was raised up not just to where he started he was raised up to a far higher place down and up far higher And this is a pattern of God's dealings with his people. Perhaps you can think of some other Old Testament characters uh, for whom that same pattern uh, is followed. Mordecai, it was there. 
a Jew taken into exile, a palace official down into the, into the dirt, but then raised up with a king's ring on his finger. Serving second only to the Gentile king. That sense is very like the story of Joseph. Do you remember the story of Joseph and his 11 brothers? He was the favorite son of Jacob. He had his robe, but then he was sold into exile, sold to Egypt. And he ended up in prison in Egypt. But then, because God was with him, he was raised up from the pit, as he calls his prison, raised up from the pit and ended up being second only to Pharaoh, another emperor, another Gentile emperor. Pharaoh put a ring on his finger, put him him in charge of the empire. And so Joseph ends higher than he began, having been cast down into the pit. On and on we could go. It's true of Job. The book of Job, strange book. Job starts as this, just the man we all want to be. He's happily married, he's got kids, he's wealthy, his businesses are flourishing, his farms are booming, everything is going well, he's walking with the Lord. And then for, for reasons that, that Job never uh, understands, it's all taken away from him in a moment. His children are killed, his business is ruined, he's inflicted with illness. That means he can hardly sleep. He is cast down. But by the end of the book, he's been raised up, wealthier, happier, more booming than ever before. It's there with David, the king, who's anointed king in the, in the reign of Saul. But despite being told by the prophet of God, anointed by the prophet of God, Christed, to use uh, the Bible's language, Messiah, despite being the Christed one, the Messiah one, the anointed one, he spent much of his life fleeing, hiding out in foreign lands with the Philistines, having to pretend to be mad in order to escape uh, being killed. Until finally he too is raised up, And becomes king. Down and up. Down and up. But the repeated pattern is the end is better than the beginning. And supremely, of course, it's there in the the life of the Lord Jesus. He's born. And there is some glory at the beginning, isn't there? Some glory. The angels sing. Wise men bring gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. That is a... It didn't happen to any of my kids' um, births. It's pretty impressive, these uh, Babylonian or perhaps Persian... Magi turning up. But then he lives a life of anonymity. This is God's son come to earth. He lives a life where no one really recognizes who he is. 30 years a a joiner, a tradesman. Three years preaching until he's really cast down, put on trial, betrayed, abandoned, crucified and buried. Down literally into the depths of the earth. Until he's raised up and glorified after three days. Three days later, he rises again. And when Jesus rises from the dead, it's not just resetting him back to where he was. As man, he comes back more glorified than he was before. His body is changed. He is glorified, to use the Bible's language. Resurrection is not just resuscitation. It's not getting Jesus back to what he was before he was killed. He is now the other side of death. He's gone through it and death no longer has any hold on him. He cannot now die. Whereas beforehand, he obviously could die and indeed did. He ends higher. The end for Jesus was better than the beginning. And that indeed is the story of the whole world. If you're trying to tell the story of the Bible, What what do you see? You see, it starts well. God makes this wonderful world. He says everything is good in Genesis, the beginning of the story. And again, if you're you're new to us, you're not not a Christian, for now, just hold fire. I know there are kind of scientific questions, but, but hold fire on those. Those have been engaged by Christians over the years. 
science and Christianity are not incompatible. But leaving just for a moment the, the mechanics aside, if you will, it starts with a world, a world of beauty and love and peace. No sin, no suffering, no mourning, no cancer, no death, no betrayal, no loneliness, no depression, no anxiety. It is a beautiful, wonderful world. And then we mess it up. Human beings mess it up, rebel. The Bible calls it sin. But, but the world is cast down into a world of suffering. But the Bible ends with the tick up again. It ends, Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, it ends with a description of a, of a new Eden. But this new Eden is even greater. It's a, it's a promised Eden. God says, one day I will make all things new. And on that day, there'll be no sin, no suffering, no sickness, and therefore no death, no sadness, no Satan. All that causes weeping and mourning and grief in this world is gone. We're headed towards a world that is better than it was even in the beginning. The end is better than the beginning. When you arrive in that world one day, for example, will you be able to sin? So in the Garden of Eden, could Adam sin and Eve? Could they sin? Were they able to do wrong? Obviously, yeah, they did. But when you arrive in heaven and when God recreates the heavens and the earth, this great end of the story, will you be able to sin then? No, it'll be impossible. Adam and Eve, they could die, couldn't they? They weren't made to die. They were made with the option of living forever if they obeyed, but they were capable of dying if they sinned. Indeed, they did die. Once you get to the end of the story, is it possible for those in heaven to die? No. The end is better than the beginning. And the Bible is not the story of God resetting the clock and saying, okay, I'll forgive you, have another go. It's the story of God taking us all the way from the depths to which we've plummeted, to the heights that he wants for us. Just imagine being certain of that. Again, if you're new to this, even if it sounds almost like fairy tales for a moment, just imagine it for a moment. Imagine being certain that one day you would be in paradise. Imagine what it might even feel like not to have even a moment's anxiety. A moment's pain, a moment's uncertainty, a moment's fear. Imagine what it might be like to have nothing but joy and love and peace. That is what's on offer. That is what God offers to the world. And again, if you can imagine what that would be like, then think how that would change how you see yesterday or this morning. It would change everything. If you were so certain about the future, it would change everything, wouldn't it? Children, let me give you two illustrations, a modern one and an old one, stolen from someone 400 years or so ago. Let me do a modern one first. Um, imagine you've got a favourite a favorite, um, football team. Okay, yeah, you can't watch football highlights anymore, can you, for reasons we won't go into this morning. But um, imagine, imagine your favourite football team, okay, and you miss the game, but it's recorded. And you've, you've tried not to find out the result, but someone's texted you. So you, you find out your team has won 5-0. Okay, so you know the result, but you so love the, the, your team that you're going to watch the game anyway. 
Okay, you've got to watch it on catch-up anyway. So, so now let's say they won 5-3, otherwise this illustration's not going to work. They win 5-3, I've just realised. 5-3. So, you know they win 5-3. You start watching the game, and you see the opposition score a goal, 1-0. You go on another few minutes, they score another goal, 2-0. Your team are on the downward slope, down and down, 3-0. Your team are losing 3-0, you see why 5-0 wouldn't have worked. Okay. How are you feeling? Well, if you've not seen the game before, you'd be feeling depressed. Oh, here we go again. They're utterly useless. Like, you know, Derby County can't win it. All the rest. But because you know the end, it changes everything. Huh. Shouldn't have learned. Oh, that's a pain. Oh, no, no. But I know it's going to turn out okay. But again, the Christian life. There are real downers. I don't mean to trivialize it with a football illustration. There are real pain. There are real pains. There's real suffering in the Christian life. None of this is meant to, to make us turn into the kind of Pollyanna characters who just say, oh, I just lost a leg this morning. Who cares? Oh, got sacked. Don't care at all. It's not that we don't feel the pain. It's not that we don't weep. Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died. But it's a different kind of weeping. It's a weeping that knows that in the end, all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. The Puritans used to use an illustration uh, of a man travelling to take a great inheritance in a carriage. Imagine you, you find your, your great aunt uh, was the Duchess of I don't know, Devonshire. And uh, Chatsworth, is your, Chatsworth is your inheritance. Okay, in Derbyshire, we used to live in Derbyshire. Chatsworth is a great country house. Imagine it's yours. Turns out it's yours. And you're en route there to become the Duke. And uh, the, the, the horse is dragging you through the Derbyshire countryside. It's muddy and mucky. And the wheel breaks. And you've got to get out and walk the last couple of miles. And you're spattered in mud. And it's raining. And you're freezing cold. How would you feel? Well, you'd feel very different knowing that you're about to become the Duke and inherit this wonderful estate, wouldn't you? Than if you just happened to be stuck in the wet and mud and damp and dank of Derbyshire. The end is better than the beginning. And that totally changes how you see the present book of Esther teaches us that pattern yet again. The end is better than the beginning. Well, okay, you say, that, that, that's, that's fine. I mean, that's a nice idea. But how can I, how can I know it'll be the case for me? Maybe I won't make it. Even if that's the story of the world, what about me? Perhaps you're a Christian and you just are not certain you will be able to keep going to the end. You might be on the downward slope of the tick. You might be as low as you've ever been. How can you know that you will make it? You feel like you might not have it within you. Two things in Esther to encourage us. First of all, the hidden hand, the hidden hand. You see in verses uh, 23 to 32, uh, there's this summary of the book and particularly uh, this emphasis on this, this festival that's going to be celebrated every year called Purim. Uh, verse 24, Haman the Agagite, he's been the bad guy in the book, the guy who's tried to have all the Jews in the empire killed. And he, did, instead of just saying, I'm going to do it today, when he was kind of prime minister, he, he threw these dice. And, and in, in, in his native language, in Persian, the, the, the word for these lots, these dice, was pure, uh, or plural, two of them, purim. So in, in those sort of languages, you put I-M on the end, it becomes pure, plural. Okay, so purim, dice. He throws the dice and it, it turns out that the best day, according to his dice, to slaughter all the Jewish people is going to be in the 12th month of the year. And this particular day is chosen in the 12th month. 
as it turns out, through various twists and turns, God's people are rescued. But the celebration, the annual festival that, that, that remembers this rescue is named after the dice, the lots, the pure, the purium. And that's why the word is repeated endlessly. It's almost kind of monotonous in verses 23 through 32. Verse 24 talks about the, the purim and explains their lots. In verse 26, it's there twice. It's there in verse 28, verse 29, verse 31, 32. Seven times we get told the festival is called purim because of the pure. It's called purim because of the, the pure that were cast. And then again, it's called purim. That's what we know. You've told us seven times, really emphasizing the point. This holiday is called the holiday, if you like, of chance or the holiday of dice. Or to use a more old-fashioned English word, the holiday of lots. Children, when, when, when the, uh, in verse 26 there, sorry, verse 24, when it talks about Haman casting lots, it doesn't mean lots like loads of stuff. Lots is a, a, a sort of, a, probably a slightly old-fashioned word now, for kind of dice. You cast the lot. And so this celebration is named after the dice, the holiday of chance, the holiday of the lots. But there's a, there's a pun going on. Now this is, I'm not sure I'm going to do a very good job of explaining this, so give, give me a break here. Okay, it's, a, it's a Hebrew pun that sort of works in English. Um, there's a pun going on. The word lot uh, in verse 24, when, when the, the, uh, the writer of Esther translates the pure, the Persian word into Hebrew, cast lots, the word lot means two things. It does mean the kind of dice thing, but it can also mean the, the, the thing that you are allotted, the thing you're given. And English works like that, doesn't it? Again, not, it's not the way we speak much, but a lot can both be the dice, and it can also be, uh, you can use it in the sense of my lot in life is to live in Leeds. My lot in life is to be a plumber. You can use it in that sense, what I've been given. And that pun is, de- is deliberate. It, it works in the, the original languages too, the, the, the scholars tell me at least. It is deliberate. Because the Jews, the faithful Jews know that actually what's gone on through the book has not been a series of remarkable coincidences. That's what it's looked like. J- just re- remember the story. The story it, it, it culminates in Esther, this Jewish girl, being married to the king and therefore pleading for the lives of her people and then being spared. Okay, that's what saves them. But how does she get to be queen? Well, the story began with someone else's queen, but there was a big party and Vashti that the current queen refused to come before uh, the king and sort of parade her beauty for right or wrong. And therefore she was deposed. If that hadn't happened, Esther would not have been in place to save the Jewish people. There was then this horrible, grim contest for a new queen, where the king, this, this, this emperor Ahasuerus, cycled through, used woman after woman after woman in order to find the right one. If Esther had not won, as it were, that competition, she wouldn't be in place to save her people, grim as it was. Mordecai, her cousin, just happened to overhear a plot against the king and report it. Remember that? Just happened to be behind the curtain, as it were, when the plot was being discussed. It just happened that the king at the time forgot to reward Mordecai. Whereas normally Persian kings rewarded those um, loyal to them who discovered plots. But this time it just happened he forgot to reward him. And then years later, 
The king, Ahasuerus, happened to not be able to sleep at night and happened to ask for a particular book read to him. And it happened to open at the page that told of Mordecai discovering the plot. And Ahasuerus happened to ask, oh, what do we give him? And it happened to be the servant saw in the book, oh, we never gave him anything. At just that moment, as Ahasuerus thought, why don't we need to reward Mordecai? The great enemy, Haman, walks into the court. It just so happened that he was the courtier on hand. When Ahasuerus said, what shall we do to honour the man the king loves to honour? And the bad guy ended up having to glorify Mordecai. As Esther revealed Haman's wickedness and Ahasuerus walked out of the room trying to work out what to do. Do I save my chief minister or do I save my, my wife? As he walked back into the room, it just so happened that Haman, the bad guy, had fallen on the couch next to his wife. So it looked like he was assaulting the queen. And that gave the emperor the excuse he needed to have him executed. Time and again, it seemed it just so happened that God is not mentioned once in the book of Esther. Not once. Unique in the Bible in that sense. Nobody prays. Nobody goes to the temple. Nobody offers a sacrifice. There are no prophecies. There are no miracles. It seems to be a book where God is absent. It seems to be a book of lot, chance, dice. But actually all along the faithful Jews know this isn't coincidence. This is what God is doing. He is silent, but he is not absent. That's why the festival is called the festival of lots. It is what God has allotted us, salvation. We are safe in his hidden hand. Silent, but not absent. And that fits in with the rest of the Bible story. The Bible is totally clear that this world doesn't run like clockwork. It's not that God wound up the universe and then stepped back and just thought he'd watch on like a kind of the king or the queen in the olden days used to go to the, the Royal Variety performance. She'd sit in the special gallery and just watch what's going on on the stage, but wouldn't interfere, obviously. Some of us think of God like that. He's watching. He's got desires. He knows what he wants to happen, but he, you know, he's not going to step in and meddle. No. Here are some Proverbs from the book of Proverbs that that speak to the book of Esther. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes steps. The heart of man plans his way. We do decide what we want to do. We plan. Where am I going to study? What am I going to study? Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? What am I going to do for a living? What shall I have for breakfast? Am I going to go to church today? But the Lord establishes our steps. You have not put one foot down on this earth that wasn't planned and purposed by the Lord God Almighty. Mystery, certainly, but truth. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot, the dice is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even chance events, throwing the dice in a game of Monopoly, irrelevant seeming events. Every decision is from the Lord. Total sovereignty, total control. Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart. The king was the most free person in the world, in the ancient world. Nobody could stop him doing what he wanted. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It was the Lord at work, even through wicked King Ahasuerus. Proverbs 
In the New Testament, we're told God works out everything according to the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1.11. Where, where is the space? What is outside of that word everything? God works out everything according to the purpose of his will. Not one atom of this universe is outside his control. Every raindrop lands where he wants it to land. Every pencil scratches exactly as he wants it to scratch. Every cell of your body does exactly what he has planned for it to do. And I understand that is a mystery because the Bible is equally clear that we are responsible for how we live. We are not robots or puppets on a string. I can't solve that tension for you. Nobody can. The only answer really is to say that God is a sufficiently amazing creator that he can make a world where we are able to make real decisions and really think and act. We're really responsible. And at the same time, he stays in control. We can't make things like that. If I make a a robot, it only does what I tell it to do. Fat chance. (laughs) But if I could. Okay, those of you can program computers. It it, it can't do anything more than you put into it. But, But somehow God is able to make creatures angels and humans who make real responsible decisions whilst he's fully in control you are a real person making real decisions of course if you're an atheist you're not have you thought about that if if, if you're someone this morning who'd say you don't believe in god you think this world just came into being from the big bang and then everything kind of went from there of course you're not a real thinking person making real decisions you are simply a collection of atoms doing what those atoms would always do at this temperature and in this combination. You've not even chosen to be an atheist. It's just that the carbon and the oxygen and the lithium and everything else that's in your body is just what you are. It was always going to combine like this. There is nothing in you to make any decisions. Atheists cannot believe in free will, but Christians can. God is sovereignly in control to save his people, even when he seems absent. Even when he seems absent. Let me give you two examples pastorally why this is so helpful. Two examples where it might seem, because we're on the downward slope of the tick, it might seem that he's not at work because he's absent. Never believe God isn't at work just because he's silent. Silence doesn't mean absence. Silence doesn't mean absence. He may be silent, he is not absent. Two examples, one physical, one spiritual. Physical. Came across this guy called Joe Eaton a few years ago now. Uh, I know nothing about him other than he suffers with spina bifida. Um, Horrendous um, birth um, ailment, um, wheelchair bound, short life expectancy, um, paralyzed in all sorts of ways. Age 20, he said this, God has used all these things his paralysis, his spina bifida, to shape my eternal perspective. The sovereignty of God gives my disability a purpose. If God were not sovereign, disability and suffering would be pointless. So I cling to the hope that the God who spoke the universe into existence spoke these slight momentary afflictions into my life for my good. It's incredible, isn't it? I wouldn't dare say it if, you know, I... But there is a man, a young man, a 20-year-old man, suffering hugely physically. But he sees in the sovereignty of God, there is ultimately a good purpose for my afflictions. Again, I don't say that lightly. It is not, I'm sure, that, that Joe and his family did not weep 
never questioned, never mourned. He certainly suffered much pain. This is not a kind of inoculation to numb you to pain. But it does give purpose. The sovereignty of God does give purpose. Nothing is outside of his control, thank God. And therefore, nothing can stop you arriving in the end that is better than the beginning. Because nothing is more powerful than God. Nothing can snatch you from his hand. It's the same too with spiritual, a spiritual sense of his absence. There's a guy called Richard Sibbs, who was a minister in the, the 16th and the early 17th century. He wrote this lovely book called The Bruised Reed. At one point he says this, Christ is never nearer to us in power to uphold us than when he seems most to hide his presence from us. He's never nearer to us in power to uphold us than when he seems to hide his presence from us. Sometimes it will feel like God is absent. You see that in the Psalms time and again, just a sense that just, where, where are you, Lord? Why are you hiding your face from me? Why have you forsaken me? But in that very crying out to him, God seems to say, Christ is present. The downward tick is not just about physical ailment. The downward slope is often about spiritual suffering, sense of absence, silence of God. But silence is not absence. Our senses are not to be trusted. William Cooper, who uh, was a poet, same time as John Newton, wrote Amazing Grace, suffered with incredible, incredibly deep and dark depression, suicidal in all sorts of ways. I wrote this wonderful poem, God Moves in Mysterious Way. This is a man who'd been in the depths of darkness, spent most of his life in the depths of darkness. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The end will be better than the beginning. And God's hidden hand is sovereign power. Even if he feels absent or seems silent, can be trusted. And can be trusted to be good. Look, we need to wrap up. I've gone on too long already. The second thing that, 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 that Esther points us to, the hidden hand is the Prince of Peace. We've already seen him at the end of the book. Here is this Mordecai, this righteous Jew who's raised up. And what does he speak? Last verse, he seeks the welfare of his people and speaks peace. To all his people. Mordecai is a picture of Christ. Let's cut to the chase. Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world, was cast down and then raised up. And what is the first thing that Jesus says to the disciples when he appears to them? Shalom, peace be with you. Come to me. I will forgive you. I will take you safely home. I do want to seek your welfare. The Son of God wants your blessing. It cost him his life. That's how certain you can be that even though he feels absent, even though he is silent, he is present and at work in your life because he was willing to die to ensure it. 
The end is better in the begin- than the beginning. That is seen in Jesus. It's guaranteed by the hidden hand of God. But those hands, those hidden hands are marked with nail marks that bled and died for you. There's hope. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Trust him for his grace. If you're new to Christianity, all you need to do is come to him and ask, forgive me, I've ignored you. Bless me and take me to that happy ever after. If you're in the depths of despair at the moment, I hope nothing I've said has seemed insensitive to you. But I hope that you've heard through Esther, through the, the mighty power of the Holy Spirit, that there is hope, eternal, everlasting and safe in the hidden hands that bear the scars of Calvary. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, this world is a confusing place and a dark place, and we struggle, we confess to understand it. We want to lift our brothers and sisters to you who are particularly in the depths of despair, who either feel your absence, your silence deep in their souls, or who are suffering in ways they cannot understand, and perhaps nobody else knows. We pray that you'd fill us, you'd fill us with confidence of the love of Christ, the love of our God, uh, the scars in his hands, these hands that guide the world. Our Father, fill us with certain hope that the end is better than the beginning, certain hope of heaven we ask, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.